0: Today we're going to deal, this afternoon we're going to deal with what the Bible teaches about the Sixth Commandment as it's summarized in Lord's Day 40, and as our background reading to that we'll read from Genesis chapter 4, the verses 1 through 17. Genesis chapter 4, the verses 1 through 17. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So far. Now we also turn to Lord's Day 40, which further explains the Sixth Commandment and provides us with a starting point for considering it this afternoon. Lord's Day 40, page 555. Here we read as follows, what does God require in the sixth commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also, the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire for revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. So far... Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if there's one thing that you can say about the age in which we live, it is that this is the age of outrage. All sorts of people have all sorts of grievances about all sorts of issues, and they will vent those grievances in all sorts of places. From the comment sections of online newspapers to the latest interviews with aggrieved celebrities. From politicians to professors, you can always find someone who is angry about something. It's the age of anger and outrage. Christians are not immune from those emotions. After all, we're human as well. And so it is possible that you are sitting here this afternoon with a deeply rooted anger in your life. Now, maybe it doesn't come out very often... Maybe you were always told to repress it. But that doesn't make it go away, does it? It just comes out in a different form then. Sometimes that can manifest itself in destructive ways. Sometimes you can have health issues, maybe an ulcer or some other issue. And it could be that you don't even consider yourself to be an angry person. But what does the rest of your family say? If you're married, what does your spouse say? What do your children say? Are they afraid of you when you become angry? And above all, what does Scripture say about these things? The Catechism summarizing Scripture classifies ungodly anger under the Sixth Commandment. And as we saw in question and answer 106, it says that by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. So, clearly anger is to be avoided, but the catechism does not give us a strategy for dealing with anger. Moreover, it doesn't merely suggest putting a lid on anger. Instead, it says that we need to go to the opposite extreme, We're not just commanded to not be angry with our neighbor, but it says when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Well, that's impossible for unregenerated people to do. The only way that you can ever get to this point is if you are born again. In other words, if God regenerates you. This afternoon, we hold up our lives to Scripture and the confessions, and we see, again, that we fall short. So then the question is, what should we do? Where do we find the gospel in all of this? Where do we go? This afternoon, we hope to find the gospel by considering that from a Christian perspective, your anger is actually an opportunity It's an opportunity to examine your relationship with God and an opportunity to examine your relationship with your neighbor. Now, it would be stating the obvious to say that anger almost always involves a breakdown in our relationship with other people. Our reflex is often to fix that problem by trying to control these other people or to somehow deal with them in another way. But that's not where the catechism begins in its discussion about anger. It begins with our innermost being. It begins with our thoughts, our words, and our gestures already in the very first answer. In other words, it wants to begin with our heart. It asks us, where is your heart at? And that question is inseparable from our relationship with God because we are united To God and faith. We cannot talk about ourselves without talking about our relationship with God as well. If our hearts are united to God and faith, we cannot talk about our hearts without talking about Him. So before we talk about anything else, we have to ask ourselves this one question. Where are things at between us and God? Not just corporately as a church community, but as individuals. The sixth commandment puts us in the middle of the conflict. And in conflict, you will always find things that you can blame on other people. But the catechism doesn't care about any of that. It doesn't care about what other people may have said or done that might have triggered you. Instead, it asks us a question, how are things between you, Christian, between you and God? It's true that other people can trigger our responses But the nature and the tone of our reply is 100% our own responsibility. Jesus said that very clearly in Matthew 15 verse 19. He says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So any conflict, in any conflict at all, our response is not primarily shaped by the other person or by what lives in the other person. It is shaped by our heart's And the content of our heart, in turn, is shaped by our relationship with God. And that's why your anger is an opportunity to examine your relationship with God. Our reading this afternoon gives us a good example. Depicts the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, the first time in Scripture that we see the Sixth Commandment being violated. And it is true that, Kay, that um, these first people, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, did not have the Ten Commandments, but they did know God. Adam and Eve had known him personally, so they knew the law of God. They knew the difference between right and wrong. Cain and Abel would have known about the fall into sin from their parents. They knew this. They would have known about the promise that God made to their parents in Genesis 3, verse 15, when he promised that one day a deliverer would come who would crush the head of the serpent. So very early on in this passage, in the background, we have this covenantal language of promise and obligation. The promise was that God would one day send a deliverer to defeat Satan and thereby deal with sin, and the obligation was to respond to that promise in faith and so live accordingly. So these first two chapters, without mentioning the word covenant, still have this covenantal structure to them. And that informs our our reading from chapter 4 as well. In fact, the same promise and obligation are extended to us. The promise is that God will cleanse us and forgive us of our sins through the blood of Christ, and the obligation is to respond to that in faith and to live accordingly. And that means that every sin represents not just failure, but it's an opportunity an opportunity to examine our relationship with God and to contemplate His promises. And that includes the sin of anger. In verses 3 to 4 of our reading, we see that Cain and Abel both made an an offering to acknowledge God. And clearly, by doing so, they also acknowledge His promises. The offering is, is always a response of faith to God's promises. Among other things, the offering is an outward expression of of what is supposed to be an inward conviction of faith. And in this chapter, Cain and Abel both make an offering, but Cain's offering is rejected while Abel's offering is accepted. Why is that? Now, much has been written about these two. It's worth noting that Cain brought... Um, If you look at verse 3, he brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So it doesn't say that Cain brought his first fruits, but Abel did bring the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. The firstborn obviously is the first of the flock and the fat portions were the best part of that animal. So you get the impression that Abel put more thought into his offering than Cain did. Cain just offered fruit of the ground. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. But other than that, there's no difference from the outside. If you would have been there and and watched them, you would have seen two, two people with two altars making two offerings. It would have seemed to be the same on the outside. And that's maybe the point. It's the attitude towards God that counts. The Lord judges the heart. In Hebrews 11 verse 4, we read that by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So this is a difference. Abel had true faith. Cain didn't. Now notice that it says that, that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. You see that, that this, these phrases, it's not just that the Lord had no regard for the, for the offering. He had no regard for Cain and his offering. And he did have regard for Abel and his offering. So the person and the offering are inseparable from each other here. The offering is an expression of how the person regards his God. God. And that's why Cain was so angry. He knew it wasn't just his offering that was being rejected. It was personal. God was rejecting him. He was rejected and he was angry. But his anger was an opportunity. It was an opportunity to consider the nature of his relationship with God. And God still maintains that relationship from his side. He, he actually reaches out to Cain. Look at this. Look at verse 6. This is This is grace. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? He's pushing Cain to contemplate his heart. He's pushing Cain to contemplate the relationship that he has with God and to, and to consider what from his side needs to change. He says, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? What does it mean to do well in this context? It simply means to respond to God's grace and faith. It means to repent. And that's really the issue here. God is not telling Cain to stop being angry. Maybe that's what we would have said to him. You know, have a better attitude. That's not what God says to him. He doesn't tell him to stop being angry. He goes much deeper than that. He's given Cain an opportunity to examine his relationship with God. And the stakes are high. If Cain is not willing to do that, there's no middle ground. There's no place where he gets to live in resentment and anger while still participating in the community of faith. God says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So sin here is depicted as a, a ravenous monster, or a a demon sitting at the door waiting for him to come out and then pouncing on him unsuspectingly. It's at the door, he says. It's almost inside. It wants to have you. You need to pay attention. You're in danger. You have an opportunity still to turn back, but it is critical to do so now. Now notice the great love and the kindness of God here. The Lord knows everything. Everything. The Lord already knows what Cain is going to do. He already knows Cain's heart. He already knows what Cain is going to say. Yet he reaches out to Cain anyway. The question is designed to lead Cain to confess his sin. The question is an opportunity to examine his relationship with God. This is grace. This is God's love and grace in the background to a person who doesn't deserve it and which one of us does. It's the same grace that we receive when the Lord gives us an opportunity to examine our relationship with Him. And we should take it seriously. Brothers and sisters, think of these words from Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's what the point of this is: is to lead us to repentance. God has never called us to just bottle up our anger. That's not a Christian way of dealing with things. He does much more than that. He's calling us to confess our inability to manage it on our own. He doesn't just want an outward display of love and patience, He wants our hearts. He calls us to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. Ongoing repentance when you lose your temper, ongoing repentance when you sin. Ongoing prayer for forgiveness and ongoing promise for renewal. Anything else is just symptom management. Anything else ignores the real issue, which is our hearts. And what does Cain do? He doubles down on his sin. He rejects the grace of God. The Lord says to Cain, "Where where is Abel, your brother? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And look at what he does here. He still refers to him as his brother. He implicitly acknowledges that they're still part of the same family. In, in, in that sense, they're still part of... Um, he still acknowledges that the, the connection that they have together um, the, as part of the same church. These were the first people. This was the only church that there existed at the time. So he, he acknowledges... Um, The relationship that he had with his brother biologically, he acknowledges the relationship that he had with him as a church member, and yet he denies responsibility, his responsibility in all of these relationships. He denies God's providence in putting him in his family. He responds with indifference to God's grace. He rejects the opportunity to examine his relationship with God. Woe to us if we do the same, for... If we reject the grace of God, what is left for us but the wrath of God? And God's wrath, God's anger is not like ours at all. Ours is explosive, uncontrolled, self-centered. His is precise, premeditated, completely impartial, totally just. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is warning us, do not reject the grace of God. The only alternative is his anger, and that is something dreadful to contemplate. Are you angry? Your anger is an opportunity to examine your relationship with God. It's also an opportunity to examine your relationship with your neighbor. And we'll consider that point next. Because faith is so central to your relationship with God, it's central to your relationship with your neighbor as well. We noted that earlier also, but not everybody sees it that way. Sometimes people have two boxes for those things, so to speak. One box is for for faith and spiritual things. The other box is for everything else. And that, that box for faith and spiritual things can look quite good until you realize that everything else is in the other box and the two boxes are kept on separate shelves. That doesn't mean that people who live that way are necessarily hypocrites. It just means that faith doesn't inform or influence the rest of their lives. And that's how it's possible for people, even free reform people, to go to church faithfully to be contributing members and still to live in enmity and hatred with their neighbor or sometimes even their brother or sister in the faith. But you know, God does not want to be king over just one box. He wants to be king over your whole life. And that is why when you are angry with your family or your spouse or your children, your anger is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to examine your relationship with God and your neighbor. These two things are connected. We saw that in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain saw God as his enemy, so he saw his brother as an enemy as well. You see, these two things, uh, the relationship with your, with your neighbor and with your God are, are always connected it is not possible for you to say that you love the Lord, but you hate your neighbor, whoever your neighbor might be. Why did Cain murder his brother? Well, the Bible tells us, it spells it out for us in 1 John 3, verse 12. It says, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. To be righteous means to live in, in, in conformity with the will of God. So the reason Why Cain murdered Abel was because Abel acted out of faith while Cain did not. Cain wanted to murder ultimately all that represented God, all that represented his grace. He wanted to destroy the very image of God. And in that sense, he was a precursor of those who killed Christ, the ultimate image of God. But that's where the similarities between Abel and Jesus end. The blood of Abel could not atone for others. It couldn't even atone for his own sins. It could only cry out and call for vengeance. But the blood of Christ does atone for sin. It says in 1 John 1 verse 7, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sins. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin, including all the times that we were angry at our neighbor and we lost our temper. But we need to receive that grace and faith. We need to confess that sin to him. Cain never did that. He was driven away from his family. He was driven away from the church. He went his own way, and he did it in rebellion. And that's echoed in the rest of this chapter. He goes off, and and what does he do? He builds a city, and he has descendants. And eventually, eventually, uh, one of those descendants is Lamech, the first polygamist. So he gets lots of descendants and they do things in their own way, and that is his answer to God. And that line ultimately was destroyed in the Genesis flood. Anger ruins relationships, it isolates us, it separates us from others. It is completely different from God's anger in that sense. Because if you look at God's anger, it's always related to his love. God is angry with all that threatens or tries to destroy his people, with all that harms his relationship with his people. That evokes his anger. Ultimately, he maintained his justice and his hatred of sin while saving his people when he punished our sins in Christ on the cross. So his anger has a restorative function. Our anger is destructive, but God's anger restores We're called to be God's image bearers. So when you're angry in your relationships, you have to ask yourself, is this an anger that reflects the image of God? Does it come out of a desire to vindicate the righteousness of God? Is it controlled by the love of God? Does it restore relationships with the image bearers of God? And maybe the answer to all of that is no, and you're angry anyway. Maybe you've never learned to deal with anger. Maybe you were disappointed a lot when you were small. You had no way of processing that. Maybe you suffered some form of trauma. Maybe anger is actually your reaction to feeling powerless. But you were always told not to be angry because that's not what Christians do. So you bottled it all up inside. You never dealt with any of the underlying issues. You never worked through any of what bothered you. You simply put a lid on it and another lid and another lid and another lid, and then finally it all blows up. Maybe it blows up regularly because you have that same mechanism of just bottling it up until it blows. And maybe in your mind you can justify it. There's probably reasons for, for why you're that angry. But the call still stands to love God, to love your neighbor as yourself, and you cannot do that when you're paralyzed by anger. And that's why anger is so paradoxical, because it, it, it's so energizing, it feels purifying, doesn't it, when, when you build up a head of steam and then, then it blows and, and you feel clean afterwards and, and everything is calm again until the next time. But, but anger actually makes you powerless because it never... Builds anything up. It only destroys. And look at the fruit. Consider for a moment, what fruit is this anger bearing in your relationship with your spouse? What fruit is your anger bearing in your relationship with your children? What benefits does your anger bring in the rest of your life? Imagine yourself the last time you were angry. Did your behavior at that time glorify God? And if you're not sure... Imagine one of your office bearers being present to witness a scene. Does that thought make you uncomfortable or not? If it does, then then that answers the question, doesn't it? It's not easy, is it? It's not simple to work these things out. And, And again, you can have two people that are angry in the same way, but for different reasons. And one of them is Lycaon. He's angry because he never really believed And the righteousness of his brother triggered him so badly that he had to kill him. Another person might be a true believer, but one who was very deeply hurt or damaged in some way or struggled with various issues that make him angry. Both of them are angry. Both of them rage and roar, but they do it for different reasons. But here's the gospel. God reveals himself to both of these people in exactly the same way. He makes the same promise to them that He makes to to us all. If we respond with faith, He will cleanse us through the blood of Christ from the guilt of our anger, and He will renew us through the Spirit of Christ from the pollution of our anger. That is His promise to us, guaranteed to us in the very waters of baptism. And if we confess our sins to Him, if we ask Him, He will enable us to work through our anger, and He will enable us to hate it. And he will enable us to do what the catechism here teaches us we should do. And that will be tremendously encouraging because you can then actually see God working in your life. Not just as something hypothetical, but as a real person doing real work in your life with real results that you can really see. It's one of the fastest ways to see God's work in your life when you supernaturally are unable to overcome the things that have held you back. So don't waste your anger. Your anger is an opportunity to examine your relationship with God. It's an opportunity to examine your relationship with your neighbor. And when you seize that opportunity, then your anger is no longer a failure. Then it can mark the beginning of a transformation. But you have to take it seriously. What the Lord said to Cain is true for us all. What he said to Cain, he says to us all. Sin is crouching at the door. Will it rule over you or not? Will you rule over it or not? In Christ, you will. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's his promise. Amen.